This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. It's fine to fail. In fact, you have to fail, but you got to fail faster. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. A study by the Alliance for Board Diversity and Deloitte says women held 22.5% of Fortune 500 board seats in 2018. The number has grown steadily since 2010, when the figure was 15.7%. Getting more women on corporate boards and into leadership positions are top priorities for Elizabeth Smith. It's not just the right thing to do to have um, a diverse board, both in terms of gender, but also ethnicity. It's not just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. Liz, as she's known, is the executive chair of the board and the former CEO of Bloomin' Brands Incorporated. You know her company better by its brands, Outback Steakhouse, Bonefish Grill, Carabas Italian Grill, and Fleming's Prime Steakhouse. She's also the deputy chair of the Atlanta Federal Reserve Board, as well as serving on the board of Hilton, where she chairs the Nominating and Governance Committee. She joined me to discuss why it's important for women not only to be in the boardroom, but to lead, mentor, and pay it forward. Liz Smith, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Beverly. I am really delighted to be here today. Well, first, let's talk about your awesome journey. You were president of Avon, and you served in several top leadership positions at Kraft Foods before you joined Bloom and Brands. How'd you do it? Well, you know, it's funny because I obviously get asked that question, and the first thing that I have to confess is that I have never had a master plan that I you know, skillfully executed and negotiated. My career and my journey has really been more like an, a ropes course of, you know, kind of climbing, going across, stumbling, retrenching, and allowing myself to figure it out as I go along. And so if I'm honest, most of my career over the last 30 years, the big pivots have been mostly serendipitous. I had no intention of going into business when I graduated from college. And I think when you leave yourself open uh, to different things, you find and develop as you go along the way. So um I guess the major thing I would say is that I have allowed myself to be open to all different things that have come my way, and it's led me on a very interesting journey. I know a lot of people want to have that, you know, I must do this by by the time I'm 25, I must do this by the time I'm 30, but it worked out great for you not not to do that. Was that something that you learned? Maybe your parents said, don't have this grand plan, just see what comes along? Yeah, you know, master plans I find in general to be restrictive versus instructive. Okay, the main things that happen in your life are the things that you didn't expect, the unforeseen detours, the the jobs that you th- didn't think you should take that you took. Um, I w- had the benefit of growing up in a very close family with um, two parents who absolutely believe that, you know, every day was a new day to define yourself, that, you know, what you wanted to do today, you figured out what you wanted to do tomorrow, and that you allowed yourself the ability to be open to whatever path opened itself up to you, that you didn't define yourself and then stay in a rigid corridor that blocked out your other options. Uh, Moving around and being 
agile and nimble was not a sign of weakness. It was a sign of strength. And I think that helped me and my siblings enormously. And I bet it gave you a lot of confidence. It absolutely does. I mean, I I have people say, how were you born with that confidence? Oh, my goodness, I wasn't. I was a very anxious child. And the way you develop confidence is by failure and resilience. And it's a confidence is a muscle that you develop over time through many failures. It's not something you're innately born with. And I, I, I really think that's important to tell young people, particularly women, because I think there's this notion that you're born with it or you're not. And that's not true. It's a muscle that you can develop and everyone can develop. That's amazing. I think that's going to be a tweet for us. Confidence is a muscle that you develop over time. You also worked in investment banking. What was that like? Yeah. So, you know, kind of consistent with having no real master plan for my career, I graduated as an English major from University of Virginia, and I wanted to get my PhD in English. And my father suggested, hey, how about instead of re-upping for school and more tuition, you go out and work in the world and get a job and figure out what life's about. So I hit the pavement in New York City. This was 1985. And I thought I wanted to go into publishing, right? That was Mm -hmm. adjacent to an English major. And I was going up to my brother's office. He was a stockbroker at what was Payne Weber at the time, printing out my resume. And I met a gentleman who worked in the investment banking division and management information systems of Morgan Stanley. And we started a dialogue, and I think he was really struck by my openness and interest. And honestly, I wasn't one of those people that said I wanted to be a banker my whole life. So um, that was the kind of the first of many serendipitous pivots. I ended up going into... Um, investment banking analyst program for two years at Payne Weber, and I learned a tremendous amount. It was a great experience. But, you know, I quickly forgot about going back to get my PhD in English. And the next thing I knew, I was working, you know, basically on Wall Street as a, as a financial analyst. And I should also note that you are deputy chair of the Atlanta Fed board. Is there anything you can talk at all about the work that you do there? Yeah, no. So I think what's great about the um, Federal Reserve branch uh, system is that I am on the board of the Atlanta Federal Reserve. And it's a wonderful group of folks. And it combines business leaders as well as financial leaders headed by Raphael. And it just gives an opportunity to add perspective to what's going on that we see in our individual business environments. And and that's the role uh, that we have is, is to kind of listen and share our perspectives. I mentioned that you chair the nominated and Governance Committee uh, and your service on the board of Hilton. And I really want to talk to you about women on corporate boards uh, because there doesn't seem to be that many of them if you look at corporate America writ large. Um, But you've made putting women on boards a priority for yourself. Talk about why you think this is so important and what it adds to a company. Sure. So I think that let's take a step back and just say it's proven that having a diversity of opinions around a board table or a management table leads to better outcomes and better decision-making and better business results, right? So it's not just the right thing to do to have diversity and inclusion around your board table. It's the smart business thing to do. How can you possibly come to the right perspective if you only have similar perspectives in the room, right? So I think that it's, it's certainly a matter of fact that having diversity of opinion 
of style, of gender, of race, of ethnicity, however you want to define diversity around a table, makes decision-making richer and better and financial outcomes better. So it's in everybody's best interest to have a diversity of points of view sitting around your table. That's the reason I feel so passionately about that, is that it's not just the right thing to do, it leads to better outcomes, both personally and professionally for people. And so as a woman that served on boards for the last 15 years, on various company boards for the last 15 years, I really see the value and the importance of it, as do many others, men and women. I'm certainly not alone there. Uh huh. And you don't just talk about it, you walk the walk. Your board at Bloomin' Brands, 50% women. Uh, the board at Hilton, 50% women. What do you tell other companies who are looking to replicate what you've already been able to do? How do you tell them to accomplish it? It's not one person's job. So I, I can take um, responsibility better, for Bloomin' Brands. But I think it's about the board and the CEO having the skill and the will and the intention to have that diversity and inclusion around the board. So you take the Hilton board led uh, so brilliantly, uh, the company by Chris Nassetta. Chris is really focused on having the best combination around the board to get decision-making and points of view and perspectives. And so I think getting that on a board is the responsibility of the folks around the table and the CEO. And at Bloomin' Brands, we were 50-50. Uh, Mindy Grossman, who's uh, chief executive officer of Wellness That Works, uh, stepped off recently. She was a tremendous board member. But I have not found any barrier to achieving that type of um, ratio around the board of different representations. I think it's just a matter of intention and then executing on it. Is intention the key to making sure that that the representation is there. I've heard folks say that, you know, it's difficult to find women to fill the jobs. Uh, One of the reasons Smart Women, Smart Power exists is because there was a perception that it was difficult to find women in foreign policy and national security to talk as experts when it's really not. They're out there. You just have to make the intention to find them. Yeah, I think it's both. I think there certainly are so many capable individuals that It's never, in my mind, been a quote-unquote supply issue that people are talking about. That is just not the case. I'd say two things. The first one is is that it has to be your intention. It can't be a suggestion. It can't be we'd like to get there. You have to say, this is what I want. Here's the timetable I want it in. And then hold yourself accountable for getting there, right? One of my favorite scenes ever that honestly is probably my personal work philosophy in this area and everyone else is Apollo 13, okay? When they're all sitting around the table and they say, you know, we got a square filter and a round filter and to make it work and give fresh air to the folks that are stuck up there, we have to figure out how to get a square filter into a round filter and here's the things that we can work with and you have five hours to do it or whatever, right? And they do it. Anything is possible when you have the skill and the will. And there's certainly the opportunity because there's a tremendous uh, cadre of fabulous women leaders representing all sorts of different perspectives. So the other thing I would say is that um, people need to broaden their net 
on what's appropriate to have around the table, right? So I think there's a lot of focus on, well, we want CEOs around the table and um, and only C-suite folks around the table. And, you know, I don't think that's uh, right or, or, or necessary to get great input. And so I've had a lot of success uh, finding qualified men and women by going, in some respects, a layer down from the C-suite you find a very rich pool of very qualified, very interesting folks to choose from. So I think if people get off the the hang-up of having the C-suite person around the table, that opens up a tremendous pool of terrific candidates. I'll give you an example. On, on my board, I have everybody from former CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, tremendous folks such as Mindy Grossman that we talked about and Jim Craigie and others. I also, at the same time, four or five years ago, I asked uh, Tara Walpart-Levy to be on my board. And she was at the time, I believe, a director at Google, um, not in her 30s, not her 40s. And uh, in fact, I, I teased her because we were able to experience a maternity leave on our board of directors uh, when, when Tara had her third child. But that's a great example of if I'd kept this philosophy of only having C-suite and the one person at the top, I would have missed out on this incredibly rich perspective of this uh, you know, dynamic woman that joined our board, albeit she wasn't in the C-suite, um, and has been a great contributor. So uh, I think that we're getting there. We certainly are. You mentioned, Beverly, the, um, the statistics which are improving, and I think that that can only continue to happen. Um, and, and I'm excited about that. And you raised an issue that I want to ask you about because it's important. Next gen women and getting them onto boards. That's something else that you've said previously that's very important to you. And you just gave that fabulous example. How do you get that to become more the norm of not only next gen women, but next gen men? bringing people in earlier than maybe they should be brought in. Yeah, I think you just continue to walk the talk, right? And the more success you have, the more people come on board, open themselves up to that perspective, and very good things start to happen. Momentum begets momentum. And I'm really excited because I feel like we're in a time of momentum, getting more diversity and inclusion around the board table, and that we should seize on this opportunity and continue to talk about our great experience with it, continue to mirror it, look towards leaders like Chris Nassetta, who have that type of representation around their table, and look at the results. The, the other thing is, is that as I, women, and I know many of my counterparts who have achieved maybe some level of success, we very keenly fear our responsibility to pay it forward, as many have for me. I mean, I, had, I wouldn't be sitting here today without having had some incredible mentors who saved me from myself in many respects along the way. And they were both men and women. It's not a surprise that four or five of my former direct bosses ended up being Fortune 500 CEOs themselves, right? Your number one job is to make yourself replaceable, to nurture and coach and teach. That's your job. Uh huh. And mentoring and coaching you know, and paying it forward is obviously also very important to you. How should women go about finding people like you to mentor? And the word that I hear more often than not is not just mentoring, but sponsoring them as they work their way up the ladder. Uh, what advice do you have? Yeah, honestly, my most honest advice is that you don't need women like me. Your mentor can be the person sitting in the office next to you or the cubicle next to you. I have made a career 
of finding women who mentored me that weren't the big boss in the corner office. So I think it's finding people along the way that are like-minded, that take the time to invest, that give you the positive feedback and the negative feedback. I think where some people get a little bit off track is when they think they go right to the quote unquote top. You're going to be my mentor or sponsor. How much can I really help you if I don't know you, if I don't know how you tick and I don't know what is important to you and what you value? You know, that then it just becomes like, let maybe you should go read a book, right? Because I don't have that personal relationship with you and really know you. And so I think a lot of people get hung up of, you know, I need somebody senior to mentor me. And what I'd say is, no, you don't. You need someone that has experiences that you haven't had, perspective you haven't had, and knows you and can counsel and coach you. And that's what I had all along the way. I've had direct managers that were the most important mentors in my life, as well as the CEOs. So I think the first thing is, you know, find somebody that you respect, that you like, and that you feel has similar values and interests as you. And then keep in touch and share. And here's the other thing. When you get in that position, you've got to then mentor and coach because as a mentee, you learn a lot, but as a mentor, you learn even more. So I think it's an ongoing process. Don't think it has to be somebody at the top. Find someone you admire, develop a relationship and an open rapport. And those are the things that that take you along the way. And you mentioned that some of your mentors were men. Oh, of course. Talk about women who might be apprehensive or they're specifically looking for a a woman mentor, but there are also men out there who could be mentors as well. Yeah, I I think that you find, again, I'm going to say you're not looking for a, to fill boxes of I am a woman and I need a mentor, therefore I need a woman and a mentor means someone that's successful, so let's go straight to the top, right? That's kind of crazy. I go back to what I said before, which is a mentor is somebody that you know and work with either in a work capacity or maybe a not-for-profit capacity or something else. You admire their work ethic. You admire thoughtfulness, their integrity, how they think about something, their values. That can be a man or a woman. You develop a rapport with them and then take the time to cultivate and nurture that relationship. Very few people in my career, when I was open and honest with them and went to them seeking advice, very few of them ever turned me down. I think the biggest challenge is is that we don't ask the questions. We don't make ourselves vulnerable. We don't lead with our heart. We like we go to these people and say, tell me everything. Why were you successful? Well, that's not how it works. I was really unsuccessful many times, you know? Um, and so I, I, I think this notion of uh, someone's got a playbook to hand to you that you can learn from is just not how it works. Um, and I would just encourage anyone to strike up a relationship and a friendship with anybody you admire and go to them open-hearted, vulnerability, and talk openly about the challenges you're facing. And guess what? My experiences, they will in turn speak openly with you about the experiences they've faced and the challenges. I want to follow up. You said I was unsuccessful many times. It's very unusual to hear someone who is in your position admit I was unsuccessful many times. Most times, folks don't want to admit that. But I think it's helpful when people admit it. Can you talk more about how you overcame the times that you were unsuccessful? So I hear that a lot from people that I am unusual and that I talk about my failures. And 
I think that's a shame. I'll talk about that a little bit because I think it's really important. So I'm sitting here. I was CEO, you know, one of, I don't know what, you know, Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 women. I've obviously had some success in my career or else I wouldn't be in the privileged position of sitting here talking to you. How is that helpful? How is it helpful to anybody to talk about all the things I did? Isn't it much more helpful to talk about how I failed and to be open and honest about my failures, which, you know, range from the trivial to the significant? Because what's more interesting and helpful is how I worked through them and thought about them and went forward from them. So I think it's a shame that more people don't speak openly about their failures because those are the most instructive things to help people with. And so I try to be very open and honest about talking about when things went well, but more importantly, when things didn't go well. And I remember being on a uh, panel at the Fortune Most Powerful Women's Conference many, many years ago, and somebody asked us about failure. And a person went before me, and it was a very long story. And as I recall, most of the story, honestly, was about how the team failed because her team was weak. And I'm just, like, looking over there, and I literally, because I can't behave in these settings, and I just said, you want one of my failures? Because I have many that I personally own with my fingerprints all over them. I'd be happy to share one if you're struggling to find one in your own career. Um, And so... What's most helpful to people is to talk about your setbacks and what you learned from them and how you did. And and I've had a number of them, which I talk openly about. I had, when I was at Kraft Foods, what I called the wall of shame. It was kind of very well known where I put up every idea that I'd been involved in that failed. And I used to take new assistant brand managers, brand managers through them and show them, you know, uh, my wall of shame. It was really extraordinary because they'd be like, you did that? Why? Oh, that's dumb. And they catch themselves because they realize they're talking to me like, well, I'm sure it was a good idea at the time. I'm like, no, mint jello cups was not a good idea at the time. <laughs> and let me tell you about what I learned from that. And, you know, um, and so. You really did have mint jello cups. I think I we remember did. those. We did. They were very brief. And, um, <laughs> but, you know, again, that that's just one example of many that um, you learn. You learn from your mistakes and you go for it. The number one thing that was taught to me that I constantly teach my team is it's fine to fail. In fact, you have to fail, but you got to fail faster. And Irene Rosenfeld, who's one of the the great CEOs uh, who just recently retired from Mondelez a couple years ago, um, was such a mentor uh, and coach to me my entire career. I met her at Kraft, but she really taught me the notion of fail faster. She's like, look, Everybody fails, but you got to have the courage to call the audible and fail faster. And I think that's the key. Liz, what are some of the things that have helped you to become successful? I often talk about this, which is that, you know, we talked about confidence is something that builds over time through use and through trial and error and failure. And the one thing that I think is so important, and I really love to speak with women about this, I think we have a ways to go on this matter, is confidence. And I don't want people to think like you're either born with it or you're not, because that's not true. And what I try to tell people when they ask me, well, how did you achieve this or that? I try to be really open about the fact that, you know, these things were very hard to do. And I was as nervous and scared and intimidated as the next person. So I think the most important 
mantra I've had in my head over the years that help is that one of what would you do if you weren't afraid? We'll do it anyway. So if you're sitting there waiting to be comfortable to speak, waiting to be comfortable to take that job, waiting to be comfortable, it's not going to happen. And you got to jump and give yourself permission to figure it out as you go along. Understand that if you fail, you are resilient. But it's the holding back that I find uh, that keeps most people back, particularly women. I mean, there was this really interesting um, piece of research that I read, um, and I find myself uh, nodding to it, which is, um, I'm going to give you an example, which is that there's there's an old saying, oh, well, um, you know, women are much better at apologizing than men. I don't know if you've ever heard that, okay? And they did research, and I found this fascinating, which is that um, women weren't, quote unquote, better at apologizing when they felt like they'd done something wrong. They just felt like they'd done something wrong much more often than men did. So when when men felt they did something wrong, they were perfectly willing to apologize. And I see that. I see that um, in, in women, and I try to help them understand that, you know, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Do it anyway. Everybody's feeling that anxiety that you feel. Don't hold yourself back. And I see it. You know, I've used this example before when I've promoted men and women over the years. I do see a difference, not continually, but in balance. And I've, I've, I've spoken about this. One of the ways I've seen this confidence difference reflected is what happens when I've promoted men and women over the year. I've had the great privilege to work with really talented men and women. And it's very interesting because more typically than not, when I promote a, a, a man, you know, we'll talk about here's the job, here's the expectations, and they're great about saying, here's what I need to be successful in that role that you've given me, and you know, here's the parameters, and can I get this or that, or you know, just very. When I've promoted women in the past, more, a lot of times, more often than men, they spend the whole first time telling me, "Thank you, thank you, thank you," and uh, you know, uh, uh, thank you for having the confidence in me that I can do this, and and do you think I can do this? And I'm like. Yes, you can do this. You have the confidence. So I guess what I would say is that, uh, you know, one of the things that's really important for me is to is to get young people to understand and, and women in particular, that everybody has fear and trepidation and that you just dive in and you figure it out as you go along. Don't wait to feel comfortable because you'll be waiting a long time. That is sound advice. And as we wrap up here, I could talk to you forever. I'm learning so much uh, just hearing all of this. Uh, You have a mantra, and it's fewer, bigger, better. Explain what that means, how it came to be your mantra. Well, first, I can't claim ownership of that mantra. I'm going to go back to what I've said. I've I've learned from so many talented people over my career, and I, I was taught that by one of the best. But it is something that I firmly believe in. And it's just basically about you've got to decide what are the few key most important things. And I, and I, I apply this to my business life, mm-hmm. to my personal life, mm-hmm. and to the causes that I choose to spend my time on. What are the few things that I can give it my all because that's going to lead to having impact, outcome, and success. You, I believe that my team can do anything, but I don't believe they can do everything. If you give everything a little bit of water, 
You know, does anything really grow? So we must be ruthless and prioritize what are the what, two or three most important things to succeed in whatever we're trying to accomplish, right? And you have to be a ruthless prioritizer. I go so far as to kind of one in, one out. Whenever I see someone said, these are the 10 objectives for my team, I'm like, wait a minute. What are the strategic two or three things that have to get done? Because we are so good at taking care of the urgent versus the important. You know, I love that saying. You have to be, as a leader and effective manager, a very clear communicator about the, these are the two or three things that we need to get done. My most important job as CEO when I was CEO for, for a decade was almost being the person in the room that said no. That's a good idea, but we're not going to do that. We're going to do these three things. So you have to prioritize and focus on fewer, bigger, better um, versus burn your team out with a million different options that aren't important or really going to move the needle forward. Wow. Liz Smith, thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's really great to be here, and uh, I've enjoyed our discussion. Me too, to say the least. Thank you so much. Thank you. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.